0: Hello and welcome to Making Media Now, the Filmmaker's collaborative podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. Before we dive into the latest episode, a quick request. If you're enjoying this podcast, please do follow or subscribe. It won't cost you a dime, and it really helps the podcast get discovered. Thanks so much. Today I'm chatting with Dr. Jennifer Murcia, an award-winning historian of American political rhetoric. Jennifer is a professor in the Department of Communication and Journalism at Texas A&M University. She writes about American political discourse, especially as it relates to citizenship, democracy, and the presidency. Jennifer has published three books about political rhetoric, Founding Fictions, The Rhetoric of Heroic Expectations, Establishing the Obama Presidency, and Demagogue for President, The Rhetorical Genius of Donald Trump. She's written about rhetoric and politics for The Conversation, USA Today, The Washington Post, and many other major media outlets. She's been interviewed about rhetoric and politics by the BBC World News, NPR, The New York Times, CNN, The Guardian, and Vice News, among many, many more. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. Now on to my conversation with Dr. Jennifer Murcia. Dr. Jennifer Murcia, welcome to Making Media Now.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: Pleasure to be speaking with you. So you are a professor in the Department of Communication and Journalism at Texas A&M, with a particular focus on American political discourse, especially as it relates to citizenship, democracy, and the presidency. And I wanted to hear a little bit about uh, the, the path that you've taken and how it led you to this particular uh, area of research and scholarship and, and uh, writing.
1: Well, I started off uh, in high school journalism and uh, did that throughout high school uh, and Upon reflection, my favorite part of that was writing headlines. Um, I really enjoyed writing headlines. Uh, And then I was on the speech team uh, in college, and uh, that was the first time I really felt like I had found my people, Um, you know, other kids that were nerdy about art and politics and uh, like to talk a lot or too much. (laughs) probably too much. And um, so I decided to kind of combine those things and get a degree in broadcast journalism. Uh, And so that's what I did my undergrad in. And I worked a little bit in TV and radio I had uh, like this idea, ideal, I guess, that journalism was about uh, finding out the truth about things and telling it to people and, you know, uh, making the world a better place. As I worked as a journalist, that didn't seem to be what we were doing. Um, it felt more like we were doing public relations. Uh, we were rewriting stories and um, just the sort of daily life of Journalist wasn't what I hoped it had would be, Um, so I decided to go to grad school, and I uh, still had that same idealism. I want to find out the truth and tell it to people and make the world a better place. Uh, And I thought I would do political um, communication because I was Mm -hmm. interested in politics. I thought I might work on political campaigns or something like that, Uh, and so I did a little bit of that, and (laughs) it was also not (laughs) what I wanted. It to be it didn't suit my idealism, uh, so I decided to get a PhD and really try to understand democracy in America and um, the relationship between communication and democracy, um, the ways in which citizens are encouraged to participate or or discouraged from participating. Um, you know, looking at the history of that, so the founders and the Revolution and the Constitution. Um, That bit was the first book I wrote, which was called Founding Fictions. And um, then I got very interested in the presidency and why we think of the president as the nation's hero. And then thinking about that made me think about demagogues and who we accuse of being a demagogue and why. And that led to my research on Donald Trump. Um, My research on Donald Trump has led to research on propaganda and uh, fascism, which Mm. is what I'm reading a lot about now.
0: Mhm. And I I first became aware of your work a few a few years ago through the 2020 book uh that you that you just referenced which was, was called Demagogue for President the Rhetorical Genius of, of Donald Trump and I want to talk about talk about that book and the path that that the publishing of that book uh has led you on. But before we get into your work in 2020, I also found a while back a TED Talk that you gave way back in the ancient times of 2016, <laughs> back when we were all young and innocent. And and, it, and it's called Be a Citizen, Not a Partisan. Uh, tell me a little bit about what you see as the distinction between the two and the importance of that distinction.
1: Yeah, so that really comes from uh, the first book that I wrote, which was about citizenship in America. And um, the question I was asking in that book was, what does it mean to have a government based on the will of the people? What can the people do? How can they act politically? And um, as I examined um, the narratives that we told about the nation and our political theory um, and how citizens were created as a character in that story, um, the first version of it was during the revolution. And we were... um, we were constituted as romantic heroes. So the citizen during the revolution would cheerfully sacrifice, they would think of the common good, they would avoid partisanship, um, and they would fight to defend the rights and liberties of all. Uh, During the constitutional era, The context had changed. And uh, some of those same people who made those arguments during the revolution now said those people cannot be trusted. Corruption is a problem that is too great for the average citizen to solve. Either they are complicit victims of corruption or they are themselves um, corrupt. Mm-hmm. And so we ought to create a government based on the will of the people that protects itself from the caprices of public opinion. Mm-hmm. Right. So we the don't tyranny
0: want of the majority.
1: Yeah. We don't want a monarchy or an aristocracy. We're afraid of that, but we're also actually afraid of the people. And so trying to balance those interests. Um, and so I think of that is um, constituting the citizen as a tragic victim. And then during the, um, The Jacksonian period, uh, you have the emergence of the second party system. This is, of course, when the Democratic Party emerges. And they were all about organizing the public uh, to support Jacksonian policies, the Jacksonian party. um, And they called that democracy. Jackson didn't try to do anything to make the government actually more democratic. Um, In fact, he was in a lot of ways, very anti-democratic person, but um, he used the power of um, of the idea of the will of the people to suit his agenda, um, and. Uh, the Jacksonians did a lot of things, like the spoils system, where they rewarded their friends and punished their enemies by giving them political appointments that were very lucrative. Um, and so, the argument that they made to support that is, "to the victors belong the spoils of the enemies," which is how I start off the TED Talk. Yeah. Um, because there's a big difference between being a loyal partisan uh, and being a citizen. Um, in the way that the most idealistic view of citizenship was configured, right, which is to say uh, the romantic notion that we will avoid party and faction, we will think of the common good, um, you know, we'll defend the Constitution and the rights and liberties of all. You know, here the Jacksonians were saying things like just uh, listen to us, do what we want you to do, and if you don't do that, then we won't allow you to have any kinds of positions of, of political power or profit under the Constitution. Um, and so, you know, it's a very uh, sort of tyrannical view of, <laughs> of what a citizen is, right? Uh, your, your only power exists within the party structure. Um, and so in 2016, as I was thinking about how the election was unfolding, I was thinking a lot about the way that negative partisanship worked, how, um, you know, there was so much party animosity in that summer, you know, and they invite you to do a local TED talk. So a TEDx talk, but you know, they invite you to give a talk on any one thing. And at the time I couldn't think of anything, um, that I wanted to say more than that, Mm -hmm. um, If I was to give that talk now, I wouldn't, I would say um, instead of being citizens, we're being propagandists. uh, Because I think that we've evolved past even the idea of being a partisan. Um, so I would give that talk a little bit differently today. But
0: um, and would, you, would, you defined, would you define the citizen who morphed into a partisan who, in your estimation, has now morphed into a propagandist? Yeah. Do you think that your average citizen partisan is aware that they are a propagandist? I
1: don't. I don't think they're aware of it at all. So most people uh, avoid politics, political news, information, discussion of politics. Most eighty percent of the public um, effectively is tuned out of politics completely. They they despise it, and I apologize if any of them are listening right now. But then the twenty percent of us, like me, um, you know, we are political junkies, and so um, you know, there's some really great scholarship about what um they write about as the other divide right so not just between the left and the right not just between republicans and um and conservatives or democrats or whatever uh, but between those that are highly politically engaged and those who avoid politics altogether because they're both problematic um right it's bad for people to avoid political news and information they'll still get it in ambient ways but um You know, they're not they're not really informed voters because the information that they receive tends to be um, lies, distortion, third hand information, misinformation, disinformation, outrage bait. um, You know, things that will circulate on social Mm -hmm. media platforms um, that are not necessarily from reputable news sources. Um, Whereas those of us that are highly politically engaged, we're too engaged, right? We want to sit on the internet all day long and argue with people about politics. Um, We feel uncomfortable if we miss a political news event or story. Um, We're willing to pay for news subscriptions. We donate to political campaigns. So basically, the entire political apparatus has oriented itself not around the 80% of the public Mm -hmm. that doesn't pay any attention to them but around the 20% of the public that's way too engaged and that 20% we're extremists
2: over mm-hmm. here mm-hmm. Um,
1: we have really extreme opinions and so um, you know but we're the ones that will keep the the, the wheels running <laughs> of the political machine. We give the money, we pay for the subscriptions, we use the platforms, we give our attention um, to news articles. And so without us, right, they have no economy. Um, and so everything is tailored to this 20%. And it has made the political process more polarized, more extreme. It's made political news and information more polarized and extreme. Which is even more alienating to the 80 percent that didn't like it in the first place. So the world we live in is one in which, uh, you know, there's 20 percent of us who are propagandists for our respective positions and the rest of us are just trying to not hear anything about it at all.
0: That 80 20 ratio that, that you mentioned, you know, I, I, think about that in terms of if, when you do go back to 16 and how there was such, you know, jaw dropping surprise on the part of the, uh, the media elite, the intelligentsia over the, you know, the victory of Trump. And I often wondered, you know, is that just a byproduct of this, this 80 20 ratio that, that it, when you're in the, uh, the the media bubbles or the informational bubbles that that people exist in then you're really going to miss uh what the drivers are and what the influences are of that eighty percent that that doesn't live life online as uh, you know as as you um, as you cite
1: yeah I mean it's None of us, even the 20% of us uh, that are fully engaged and too engaged, none of us are well represented uh, by our official political representatives. The system was literally designed to prevent us from being well represented. Um, There was a debate during the um, Uh, The Bill of Rights debate, the original amendment, it was actually the Third Amendment to the Constitution. It's now known as the First Amendment uh, because the first two didn't pass. One of those was about the ratio of representation, by the way, that didn't pass. So we should have had um, fewer citizens to representative if that had passed. Um, But yeah, so originally, as part of the First Amendment, so you have five rights included in the First Amendment rights, and those are your rights as citizens. So that's the freedom of speech, Mm -hmm. the freedom to petition, the freedom of the press, the freedom of religion, and the freedom of association, I think. Um, And uh, nobody can get all that. But there was going to be a sixth, and that was the right to instruct your representative, meaning that people who sat in Philadelphia at the Constitutional Convention, who then took part in the new government, they were elected to the Senate and they were a part of the debate over the Bill of Rights, they said, our public wants us to have an amendment made that says that the public should get to vote on anything that the representative is going to vote on. The public should vote and the representative should mirror the views of the public. Right. And they said... Absolutely not. Binding instructions is what they called it. And James Madison was there. And James Madison, of course, wrote the Constitution. And he freaked out. He was like, this was like a two-day debate over this thing. They didn't debate any of the rest of it, but they debated this. And um, and then he said, you know, what? If, if this is what you think it is, then you think that we created a democracy, which is the last thing we created, right? Um, and... That's the kind of problem we have. Um, Even, you know, one thing that we used to have that we don't have anymore is the right to petition. So it used to mean when you petition the government for redress of grievances, it used to mean that you would send a petition to your representative. Your representative would read it into the House record Mm -hmm. during petition days, Mm -hmm. which were regularly scheduled. And then it would get sent to committee. And so you could literally propose a law. You could yep. petition the government for a redress of grievances. You could say, this is a problem that needs to be solved. And they would refer it to the proper committee. They kept doing that through the 1840s. They stopped doing it because they got too many petitions against slavery.
0: Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And I mean, the you know, if you fast forward to current day, Everything that you were just saying brings to mind for me so many of these issues where polling after polling after polling shows the public feeling one way, but legislation cannot move on it. Uh, I, I'm thinking particularly uh, in the uh, in the area of, say, uh, gun regulation. Uh, Even, you know, even among gun owners, even among NRA members, even among Republicans, and yet it's DOA uh, in in, in Congress. Uh, More and more, it's coming to the attention of Republicans that uh, anything to do uh, with the abortion issue, where the national polling is saying one thing, and uh, the... um, uh, the the Republicans and, and, of course, the members of the Supreme Court are saying something very different. But that seems to be illustrative of the point you're making.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, because even since we lost our right to petition, right, um, things like the more recent uh, Citizens United um, Supreme Court case, uh, or the rise of lobbyists since the 1980s, 1970s. And Citizens
0: um, you know, United was the decision that equated essentially uh, financial contributions were a form of speech.
1: Yeah, money equals speech. Mm-hmm. Um, so, any it means individual. If you have
0: more money, you have a louder voice.
1: That's right. And it also um, allowed for dark money to be contributed to campaigns that can't be tracked. And so Mm -hmm. um, more money has poured into uh, our political process since um, the 2012 election, really, Mm -hmm. uh, than ever before. And um, and of course, lobbyists have more power than average citizens do. And so, um, you know, we have less and less political power. While at the same time, we have more and more propaganda power as individuals, right? We have you and I with our cell phones have more propaganda power at our disposal than any nation did during World War One or World War Two, right. and we use it. And so, all of the appeals that are made to the highly engaged um, political. Uh, junkies are, you know, use your platform. Send this message. Uh, call your representative. Use this script. Uh, you're right, and so we circulate these zombie political messages out into the public. Um, You know, not thinking about whether it's ethical to do that, Um, not thinking about whether those messages might persuade anyone. They tend to be written as outrage bait. uh, Right. And so then you get like a dopamine hit if they recirculate and if they're amplified. uh, Right. You might get into a fight with someone on the Internet, you know, which a political junkie loves. Right. Like all of that is designed um, to play on the vulnerabilities that we have as individuals. And um, to and exploit all that them. also
0: just reinforces that partisanship that Absolutely. that you're calling attention to.
1: Absolutely, and so it exploits our vulnerabilities personally, but also in the system itself, um, and it does it for partisan ends.
0: So we come up to 2020 uh, with the publishing of your book, as I as I mentioned earlier, uh, Demagogue for President, the Rhetorical Genius of Donald Trump. I want to tease out the semantics a little bit of that title uh, for the for my benefit, the benefit of our of our listeners. Demagogue. Yeah. Define that for um, us.
1: Sure. So if you look up demagogue uh, in the dictionary, it will tell you, and I think this is the colloquial version you probably have um, of the word, is that it is someone who uses polarizing propaganda for their own benefit. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a legitimate understanding of the word. there's also a positive view of demagogue, and that is as someone who defends the rights and interests of the people against the other parts of the state, which are viewed as corrupt. And so I think of that as a heroic demagogue defending you know, the rights of the people against the corruption of the state versus um, a dangerous demagogue, someone who is using polarizing propaganda for their own good. So there's a degree um,
0: of subjectivity in this, is there not?
1: There is. And so you might say, well, how would we know? (laughs) Is it just someone, you know, you don't like their policies, so therefore they're dangerous? Well, turns out Aristotle has the answer for that. Um, And so the weighing mechanism that you can use is whether or not the leader will allow themselves to be held accountable for their words and actions. So an unaccountable leader is a danger in any political system, Uh, democracy aristocracy oligarchy it doesn't matter what kind of government you have uh or or even a business right girl scout troop doesn't matter if you're an unaccountable leader that's a danger um because of course accountability means that um you're going to follow the rule of law uh you're going to accept election results uh, you're going to um you know abide by the constitution whatever Um, And so, uh, yeah, Aristotle wrote that in ancient Greece, the demagogue was someone who would go into the assembly. And because anyone could propose policy, they would propose policies, use the power of rhetoric to get them passed, to get the city-state to pass them, and then they would not be held responsible themselves for the success or failure of the implementation of those policies. Should mm-hmm. we go to war with Sparta? Yes, let's go to war with Sparta, but I am not the general who will go and lead the troops, you know, to defeat the Spartans.
0: Um, so it's a little actually. analogous to saying when you are president, I can't do anything about the border without congressional movement. And then when you're not president, you say, well, the president should just issue an executive order. That's
1: right. Or a strategy where you say, um, "I'm gonna build a wall, and it's gonna be the beautifulest wall, the best wall you've ever seen. So strong will be the wall." And then they say to you, "Well, uh, Mr. Trump, how will you get the money for that? Or how will you build that wall?" Oh, you're gonna love it. It's gonna be great, right? Mexico's uh, to gonna just pay be, for it. It's gonna it's gonna pay for itself, uh, yeah. right? Like, so just be vague about it, and to um, not be accountable for the promise you're making that would be
0: another way to do the same thing in your 2020 book when, when you uh delve into the um the rhetoric the rhetorical genius as you as you describe it uh you you make reference to several uh, latin phrases uh that are in the in the toolkit uh the first being uh populum uh, an appeal to the wisdom of the crowd how does the uh, demagogic uh rhetorical genius uh make use of of that tool
1: Yeah. So in the book, I try to show how Donald Trump is at once the romantic hero demagogue, Right? He is viewed by his followers and his supporters as someone who is defending their rights against the rest of the state that is corrupt, and also the dangerous demagogue from everyone else. Um, and so I show how he used three strategies to connect to his followers and keep them close, and how he used three strategies, uh, which are essentially war rhetoric strategies, frankly, uh, to push away himself and his followers from everyone else. Um, and so to answer your question, ad populum is um, the demagogues' uh, greatest strength. Uh, their, their greatest source of power is their popularity, is their, their people. Uh, a demagogue has no power if they have no support. So if you ever wondered why Donald Trump is always saying, uh, my people, my people are the greatest people my people are strong my people are the best americans my people are so smart um right my people love me and i love my people all of that those are all um appeals to uh to (laughs) to the popularity i guess um of donald trump and his people um but the wisdom of that crowd
0: and he wielded this mutual admiration society going on
1: Yes, absolutely. And he wields them like a cudgel. He uses them to intimidate opposition members of his party. He uses them to intimidate opposition members of other branches of government, um, of the opposition party. Um, You know, everybody uh, is intimidated by Donald Trump's followers as much as they are about Donald Trump. Right. Donald Trump may be not so tough, but it's all of his fans that make him seem like a real threat.
0: Yeah, the the and the, the threat calls uh, calls calls to mind another Latin phrase that you use, which is uh, ad baculum. Uh, the yeah. um, threats of force or intimidation and how that comes comes to play in the in in the rhetoric.
1: Yeah. So um, threats of force and intimidation, coercion, um, all of those are very useful strategies for Donald Trump to silence his opposition. Uh, Right. So you don't want to take up a position against Donald Trump. You'll silence yourself even just thinking about the threat (laughs) that could come your way. Um, And so, you know, it, it might be something like there are protesters at his rally and he says, go get them, you know. Get him out of here! I hate it when people are like that or whatever. Um, it might be something like that, where uh, his rally crowd will then attack the person and remove them from the event. Uh, it might be something like online, um, sending you know messages that say something like "Ted Cruz's dad killed Lee Harvey Oswald," and uh, you know you should get him or something like that. Um, You know, there's all kinds of things that he did to intimidate his opposition, to threaten them, to threaten the media with lawsuits. Um, You know, all of those things are done as part of a strategy.
0: In 2016, what conditions and this is a this is a pretty broad question. What conditions do you think were in place that 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 made it sort of perfect for a figure such as Trump to emerge and and capture this seemingly willing audience?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So in the book, I try to explain that 2016 was a historic crisis in America's public sphere, that we had record high levels of distrust for all institutions, mm-hmm. for one another, for political leadership and frankly, all leadership. um, And and those historic levels of distrust are are still the same. They're still historically low. Uh, Polarization, we were never more polarized except for the Civil War than we were in 2016 and have been. Um, And frustration, uh, just growing levels of frustration that problems weren't being solved. uh, Nobody seemed to be able to get anything done. You know, the rich were getting richer and everyone else was doing worse. And, um, you know, just real frustration with the state of the nation and real pessimism about that. So any typical statesman would look at that situation and say, what can I do to unite the nation? What can I do to strengthen people's trust in our institutions? This is what Joe Biden did in 2020. This was the campaign he ran on, what he's been trying to do the whole time he's been in office. Donald Trump looked at that situation and said, how can I take advantage of it? Mm -hmm. How can I use this to my advantage and run a campaign that will take advantage of the distrust and the polarization and the frustration in order to get Donald Trump elected? Um, and he was very successful at using those strategies. So that's one big part of it. The other big part of it is we um, were in a real important media uh, conjuncture is the academic word, but uh, we were in a very important moment in the media where um everything changed sort of all at once. Um, and what I mean by that is the media in terms of, you know, national and local news organizations were weak. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, you know, they hadn't figured out exactly, and they still haven't figured out they're weaker now. Um, they hadn't figured out like exactly how to transition into this new economy. Um, and, and so they were weak, um, And at the same time, we all had so much access to one another through the public sphere. Um, And that hadn't been the case even, you know, in the 2012 election. Mm -hmm. And so you have a real uptick between 2010 and 2016 of people adopting um, social media, smartphones, all of that technology and it proliferating. And at the same time, you know, you have government um, organizations outside of the United States that are determined to subvert our election process. Um, And you also have just random teenagers in Belarus and other places um, who are like, Hey, I can make money off of this. (laughs) Let me, let me just write up some articles. Right. So we just had this real naivete about propaganda in 2016 and how it worked in this new media environment at the same time that we all had the opportunity to make propaganda and we were all consumers of information warfare. Um, And that really helped Donald Trump. Tremendously, maybe even more than all the other stuff.
0: <laughs> yeah, when when we started talking, you you mentioned uh, I think it was eighty percent that you said of of, of people uh, claiming to be uh, they weren't into politics, they weren't they weren't uh, tapped into it. And and you made reference to them getting information nonetheless in ambient ways that in some way shape or form did help them form a view of politics or adhere yeah. to one or another um, you know political belief, and the role of social media in that cannot be overstated. When you think of particularly a time like, say, twenty fifteen, twenty sixteen, when more people are getting online than ever before, uh, in in the social media realm, particularly say like Facebook, um, and people actually not being not questioning themselves and saying, well, is this a piece of news? Is this a piece of journalism? Or is this simply a piece of information that somebody put online and the very fact that it's online imbues it with a credibility that it did not deserve?
1: That's right. And and the way that people circulated that information, it was um, outrage bait, right? And so we're very attracted to outrage. Um, if if we see information that is outrageous, um, we are more likely to circulate it, even if we don't experience outrage ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they've done a lot of research about how outrage works as a media strategies online. Um, so it tended to be outrage. And, um, you know, people just couldn't tell the difference. They didn't know. And Maybe they still don't know, but they didn't know that, you know, any random headline that they would see come across their Facebook feed, that it wasn't real. And in fact, most of us scroll through our feed so fast that we wouldn't even recognize like our brain doesn't can't do it as fast as we can scroll it and so um you know we wouldn't even recognize the source of that information the headline would lodge you know itself somewhere in our brain and we would take that and just move forward Mm -hmm. and not even think about you know Mm -hmm. what it was or or where it came from Um, so there's definitely that aspect of it Um, and then it's not just on social media so you know a lot of folks have learned since 2016 um, you know don't trust everything you see on facebook But what people are... In are these chat groups, um, you know, with their friends and their family members, and you know, they're maybe not posting news stories to one another, but you know, it'll be something that catches their eye, some kind of outrageous content or something that confirms their priors, right? Motivated sure. reasoning, confirmation ba- bias make us want to share information. Um, conspiracy lies make us want to share information, and so it'll be something like you know, a video that mocks Joe Biden. And and he looks like an old man. He's falling down the stairs or whatever, whether it's true or not. You know, it doesn't matter. It confirms all of your biases and you're motivated to share it or, you know, something that says don't take the, um, the vaccine. Right. Good motives. Right. Like you want to protect your family members or save them from something that you think could be dangerous. Um but the information you're sharing is inaccurate, mm-hmm. right? And so a lot of people um, are getting information in these ambient ways from people they trust, um, but that they themselves don't have trustworthy information.
0: You know, when you're saying that, it, 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 makes me, it makes me wonder, going all the way back to your discussion of James Madison, was he onto something? <laughs> and not trusting the wisdom of the masses, w- was he anticipating that you know if if we give everybody equal say, it's going to be chaos and and emotion rather than intellect and fact uh, is is going to rule the day.
1: Well, this is what um, the wisest among us have always said, right? Um, and when James Madison said it. He, um, of course, had a very negative view of human nature, but also he was working within a communication environment that was very different. Sure. So um, if you think about how slow news and information moved in the early republic, yeah. it would take months and months and months. And so they just couldn't conceive of a world in which average citizens had any kind of information about, you know, events or, or, or decisions that needed to be made or, you know, political people, what they were really like, they just, um, you know, it was all too far removed from the experience of the average person, you know, and they were right about that. Um, Obviously, today, we have the opposite problem. And the thing that I am um, a pro-democracy person, right, so I may be too idealistic about democracy, but I believe that human dignity requires that the consent of the governed is um, the rule, and not the exception, right? Mm-hmm. That we should get the chance to say um, and control the decisions that are made uh, on our benefit or on our behalf. What, Where Madison was right, and why your question is so good, is because there are, of course, manipulators among us. There are people who want to control the public that are anti-democratic, fascists, right? Um, people who maybe... Aren't just moderate, you know, James Madison scholars. And, um, you know, those people have figured out all of our vulnerabilities, right? They know about how confirmation bias works. They know about how to hijack our amygdala so that we react to outrage with emotion. They know how fear appeals work, right? They know all of these things and they design apparatus. They design apps, algorithms, um, messages, right? Entire political campaigns around taking advantage of our inherent vulnerabilities um, so that we are prevented from acting rationally and reasonably. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, they're very savvy about it, you know. People like me who study like good public discourse and the relationship between communication and democracy, you know, we're sort of playing catch up. We're like, oh, what did they? How did they? Oh, you know, that was really smart. That diabolically smart. But like, that was really smart what they did. How? Why did that work? Um, you know, trying to figure out, and, and in a way, we're we're a step behind.
0: In your uh, examination um, of communication, presidential communication or just political discourse, say over the last 40 years or so, what trends, and and almost at a granular level, what trends are you easily able to to observe just in terms of, because when, when we're talking about rhetoric, I'm curious around literally the vocabulary that presidents and politicians are using literally the, almost the complexity of, of the rhetoric. Um, How has that evolved say in the last 40 years?
1: That's interesting. Uh, I would say over the last 40 years, you could probably chart um, a trend of it being more and more complex, right? Um, There was definitely a like policy wonk era, of mm-hmm. political discourse that was very um, driven by political consultants and it was about lots of data and that, that kind of stuff um, and I think that probably in the last 10 years um, with social media and Trump uh, as an effect on the public I think there's probably more emotion I think there's probably more of a faux authenticity right like we want to believe that we know the people that you know social media has broken down these barriers where you know we feel like we could have access to the pub you know these public people um and so there's a real performance of authenticity that mm. comes with that and so that might mean things like swearing that might mean things like um Donald Trump uses Paralypsis, which is I'm not saying I'm just saying, ironically, saying two things at once, which enables him to show his supporters um, the supposed people real are him. saying. <laughs> right. The supposed real him, um, like the backstage, the dirty, ugly truth that he wouldn't say out loud or he knows he shouldn't say like all of those kinds of um, authenticity strategies um, connect a politician to their followers. Hmm. Um, And so you feel like you know them, you're on their team, you're one of their friends, uh, right? And so I I think you could probably, over a 40-year span, right, I think you could probably say there's been several shifts.
0: Yeah, and this is definitely going back more than 40 years. But, you know, I look at something like, uh, you know, the Gettysburg Address or... Then, you know, speed up a bit with uh, Roosevelt's speech about the, uh, the, fr- the Four Freedoms, or Eisenhower's um, speech around the military-industrial complex, Kennedy's inaugura- uh, inaugural address. And when, when you read those, or at least when I read those, one of the first things I think is, uh, first of all, these wouldn't even be comprehensible to large swaths of a contemporary audience. Um, even if you go into the later 60s, uh, some of Nixon's speeches and LBJ's speech during the, during the Great Society, um, and, and there is a degree of subjectivity here, but I always got the impression that, man, they're really dumbing it down that it it feels to me like there's a real disregard for the intellect of the uh, the citizenry, of the voter, so much so that, as you just mentioned, what passes for an effective political speech isn't the content of the speech, it's the emotion that that speech has elicited.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really great observation. Um, You know, so scholars like me who study the relationship between the president and rhetoric, um, we explain, some of us have explained, um, about the way that presidents were originally supposed to behave um, and how that shifted in the early 20th century. So, for example, uh, you mentioned Lincoln's speech So the Gettysburg Address, Lincoln wasn't even really supposed to talk. His speech was like two and a half minutes. The real star of the day was Edward Everett, who gave a three hour speech. Um, And the reason for that is because presidents didn't speak to the public then. Right. Right. And so we have a few examples, Lincoln's Gettysburg being a highlight among them, but, you know, Prior to Teddy Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, we really didn't have the president speaking to the public. When the president spoke, they spoke to other branches of government, um, and it wasn't for public consumption. And so, yeah, I mean, it's a, a really different time prior to those folks. Um, Teddy knew how to work publicity, right? He was a real showman. And um You know, Woodrow Wilson was a political science professor. He knew what he was doing too. Uh, And what they did is they changed the balance and separation of powers so that the president, which was supposed to be sort of the second rung of the federal um, pyramid, right, that they were supposed to just affect the laws that were passed by Congress. Um, became the center of our political system. And they did that through um, a compliant and complicit media apparatus Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that helped them to take power away from Congress. And so the president, starting with Roosevelt and Wilson, would go over the heads of Congress, speak directly to the public and then use the public to put pressure on Congress to act. Right. Right. Um, And so as that evolved throughout the 20th century um, and changed with each new media technology, right, Uh, you know, if you go back and you read the speeches that were delivered as part of the 1961st televised presidential debate, you'd be so impressed impressed with both Nixon and Kennedy and their ability to speak about policy, like in Mm -hmm. detail. Mm -hmm. Uh, And at that time, the news media, I mean, even into 1968, um, they would show a speech um, delivered by a presidential candidate without interruption or editing. They would simply say, uh, Lyndon B. Johnson gave a speech today. And then they would excerpt the speech for three to five minutes uninterrupted, right, on the news. And so the public heard directly from these people who spoke in paragraphs, and those paragraphs were conveyed to the public as they were. That changed, right? right. Um, sound bites got smaller and smaller. Eight seconds is your average. You know, six yeah. to eight seconds is your average, and it's edited and contextualized so that um, the president or the presidential candidate is never allowed to speak in paragraphs to the public.
0: And Very as you rarely. and as you know, a lot of that had to do with the way that the networks looked at their news division, where they were. That where they used to be considered sort of a lost leader, almost a public yeah. service. Now they're actually looked at as a profit center, and they know when they're losing the eyeballs. They know when they're losing the attention, uh, and it becomes sort of this um, circular firing squad in the sense that look, people don't want to, people aren't interested in that. Well, people aren't interested in that because you don't trust them enough to to provide them, right. to provide them That's enough right. of it. As you look at the sort of the political landscape in the U.S. right now regardless of party um are there any individuals that that come to mind for you who employ the tools of rhetoric with more aspirational goals with who 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 actually give greater consideration to the uh, intelligence of the voter and you know don't feel driven to take complex issues uh, and break them down into sound bites? Or or am I just being too idealistic?
1: Uh, no, I think that there are still um, great orators in government. Um, obviously, Barack Obama was pretty good at speech making, um, and he could make you feel, but he could also make you think. Um, I, I really appreciate Jamie Raskin right now. Um, he's someone mm-hmm. who I really think is very knowledgeable about the constitution and the early American period. Um, but who also has, you know, sort of a, a quick wit and, um, good political sensibility. Um, I think he means well. So I really enjoy whenever there's a clip of him or, or I can watch him on C-SPAN. I, I usually try to tune in. Um, yeah, I think there's lots of folks like that. I think.
0: I would say um, even currently right now, although, you know, if we went toe to toe issue to issue, we probably would, Probably wouldn't agree on a whole a whole lot, but uh, Liz Cheney and and yeah. the rhetoric that 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 she is um, uh, putting forth in defense of democracy, putting yeah. country over party
1: yeah she has been very impressive. Um, I mean and she comes across sort of as a stoic right you know she's yeah. <laughs> she's a, a stalwart um, knowledgeable person of what it ought to be um, and so it does it does feel uh, sort of severe and also important at the same time And you know she has also you know just like Cassidy Hutchinson, uh, both of them have, what i think of as a fearless speech style of communication which is to say um, that in ancient greece there's a term for someone who speaks the truth and um, it's parousia and uh, those people who spoke the truth uh, did so at risk to their own personal safety Mm -hmm. Um, they felt obligated to speak the truth what they knew to be true and you knew it was true because of the risk they took In the Mm -hmm. speaking of it. And so there are some people that you look at and they will claim to be authentic truth tellers, but they're not risking anything to say those things. Uh, And then there are others that you know they're speaking the truth because of the risk that Mm -hmm. comes with it. Mm -hmm. And Liz Cheney is one of those people.
0: Before you and I actually hit the record button on this conversation, I was I was telling you how I had seen uh, several of your media appearances on various cable television shows and following you on Twitter and whatnot. And I'm curious uh, from your perspective um, what you have found out about or felt about the media's role in disseminating and deconstructing propaganda uh, versus just sort of using it as part of that outrage tool. And if you have any insight around how the players within the media kind of agree with that, but do they feel empowered to change it or do they feel powerless to change it?
1: Yeah, I have um, so much respect for the journalists who I have spoken with. Most of them, um, to like to a person, I can't think of one who hasn't been smart, curious, interested in, you know, the things that I say, most of them ask for academic things they can read, sources to learn more about the kinds of things that I'm talking about. Um, They live in a world that is driven by algorithms, uh, editors, bottom line considerations that I don't live in. Mm -hmm. And so they have you know, massive time pressure to get stories written every day. Um, they're competing, of course, with other news avenue news venues. Um, You know, and there's the editor to get through uh, both with your uh, idea for your story, but then also the quotes that you include, um, the content, the angle that it's written, all of that stuff. Um, You know, and so there's a lot of uh, journalism scholars who write about uh, journalistic norms and practices and news routines in terms of how they affect journalism itself. Um, And, you know... I think it's easy as a critic to say, like, look at an entire election's worth of news stories and you can see these trends and critique those trends versus like I'm in the weeds every day, like trying to get my article out. I got a deadline. I got to, you know get five people on the phone who don't want to talk to me and make words happen. Um, you know, that's a real stressful job. (laughs) Um, and so, like I said, I've been very impressed with the journalists who I have encountered and at the same time, very critical of the product of journalism. Um, I'm with Jay Rosen. We should be, uh, we should have a democracy agenda, not Mm -hmm. uh, a horse race clickbait agenda. Um, you know i'm with you journalism should be a public service and not um you know uh, it could, it should be a loss leader it's you're using our airwaves and our our time and our attention you know it should be a service to the public we should be finding out the truth and telling it to people and not trying to cause outrage and partisanship so um you know there's a lot there
0: <laughs> there is a there is a lot there Finally, I wanted to ask you, so your 2020 book, as I said, uh, was the rhetorical genius of Donald Trump. So, um, you know, it feels like centuries, but only four years <laughs> have passed since the publishing of that book. And uh, how's that genius part holding up? Is the is the old stuff still, you know, are the greatest hits still resonating the way that they that they did before?
1: Uh, That's a good question. So um, I get a lot of um, pushback on the title. Uh, So let me just say, um, so in 1939, I believe, a rhetorical scholar named Kenneth Burke wrote a book review of Hitler's Mein Kampf. And he wrote about um, Hitler's uh, demagogic effectiveness. Mm -hmm. was how he called it. Right. So um, not agreeing at all with Hitler's program, um, but noticing that Mein Kampf is a brilliant propaganda manual, um, you know, both for content and for instructions about how to do Nazi propaganda. Um, And as I looked at Donald Trump's 2016 campaign, I saw similar genius right um, and so demagogic effectiveness rhetorical genius uh, to me was kind of the modern way of saying that mm-hmm. um and so that's why i said that but um he is very good at using language as a weapon unfortunately he just like hitler was very good at using language as a weapon and um I think there are differences in 2024 compared to 2016. I just said this to a reporter today, but I'm going to say it again because I think I was right (laughs) and I liked it. Uh, In 2016, I think that Donald Trump ran as a demagogue, uh, an unaccountable leader who would go into the existing political system and affect the MAGA agenda. Right. Right. I think in 2024, he is running as a dictator. And I think... A dictator is not just an unaccountable leader, but they're a totalitarian leader. And he's not just running to go into the existing system and affect the MAGA agenda, but to destroy the existing system and affect the MAGA agenda. Right. So if you have paid attention to all of the different things that he is promising he will do, Um, about uh, eliminating uh, branches of government, not branches, offices of the government, um, eliminating positions, making everyone beholden to him and loyalty, um, using the power of the presidency to punish his enemies. Um, You know, all of those things are unconstitutional. He has declared that he is above the law. He can do no wrong. um, Right. And uh, he is running for dictator. You know, he says he'll be a dictator for one day, but ain't no dictator in world history who ever gave up power willingly after one day. That's a lie.
0: Well, you only Uh, need be a dictator for one day if what you do (laughs) on that one day is to dismantle (laughs) enough of the uh, guardrails. That's only necessary. And on the day that you and I happen to be speaking, you know, I'm hoping it's from a small sample size, but a poll was released. It was seventy two percent of polled Republicans said they were okay with that.
1: Yeah, I know. it's scary. Um, and that's because so the reason why Donald Trump is running as a dictator is because he's a loser. And the worst thing you can be, both in Donald Trump's mind, Um, emotionally he cannot handle it but also for his followers right his his followers have one thing in common is that they test very highly on the right-wing authoritarianism scale so there's a test online you google it up you'll find bob altemeyer's right-wing authoritarianism scale he is a psychologist psychiatrist Whatever he's a researcher of psychology, for 40 years he's been studying right-wing authoritarian personalities, and he has this scale. It's posted online. You can take it. So, in 2016, researchers found that the one thing that Trump supporters had in common was right-wing authoritarian personality. Something we've been studying since the Second World War, and some scholars estimate that 40% of the American public is a right-wing authoritarian. Um, and those are folks who have a strong desire for community, communal norms want to be enforced. They look to a strong leader um, to enforce those community norms They are very threatened by um, violations to what they believe to be the norms of the community. They have a low interest in uh, cognitive complexity, right? They don't want things to be hard. They don't have to think about stuff. Um, They really like hierarchy, right? And so these folks um, look to what's called a socially dominant orientation person. Someone like Donald Trump, who has subclinical levels of narcissism, Machiavellianism, and sadism. They desire to dominate, right? And they put themselves out there and they say, elect me and I will dominate for you. And that's I the will key. Punish that, that, those that's your violators. key preposition.
0: The for yeah. you part. Yeah. <laughs>
1: and I will punish the violators of all the norms, right? I will punish those people who need to be punished. I'll be a retribution. Um, And so for the right-wing authoritarian personality, the worst thing you can be is weak, old, a loser, right? Because they want a strong leader. They want someone who's promising them that they are going to right all the wrongs and make things right again, right? Mm -hmm. Make things Mm -hmm. the way they're supposed to be. And so Donald Trump has to be a strong leader in order to keep their support. As soon as he starts to look weak, like Nikki Haley's been attacking him for the last two weeks about being weak. Joe Biden has been attacking him for being a loser. They're not wrong. (laughs) Right. That's the way to get at him and to separate him from his loyal base, because they only want him if he is a strong leader. They only want him to be a winner. And all evidence shows that he is not a winner. He is a loser. He lost the popular vote in 2016 as head of his party. His party lost in 2018. They lost in 2020. They lost again in 2022.
0: And numerous right? special elections in the interim.
1: Many, many losings. <laughs> Lots of loserdom.
0: Yeah.
1: All the losses. And so um, he looks really weak. He's losing in court. Right. And so the more he loses, the more he has to pretend to be a dictator mm-hmm. and run mm-hmm. as a dictator and promised to be a dictator in order to keep his supporters loyal.
0: Well, on that apt- optimistic note, <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Jennifer murcia I want to thank you for your time. If if folks want to learn more about you <laughs> and uh more about your scholarship and your books, uh where should they go? Uh
1: you can find me on Twitter. I have a web page and things like that, but mostly if you're looking on social media I'm on Twitter.
0: All right. Well, I I appreciate your insight. This this has been a a very engaging conversation. I appreciate your time and your insight. Thanks for joining me.
1: Thank you so much. I enjoyed this.